This episode is brought to you in part by Candorel. Coming soon, a luxury master-planned condominium community rising at the corner of Bathurst and St. Clair. Situated directly on the subway and streetcar line, a monument of architecture and interior design, a timeless expression of glamour and grace. Forêt Forest Hill. Register today at liveatforêt.ca. That's live at f-o-r-e-t dot This is Bonjour Chai, the Kosher Empire Strikes Back edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, Kosher, the sequel. I have an in-depth discussion with Dr. Stephen Lapidus about Kosher in Montreal, and it is summer. Summer means tourism, and we discuss our tips for Jewish tourism in Canada. But first, Alana David, how are you guys doing? It's very warm out in Toronto. I hear it's raining where you are, Avi. I don't know about Calgary. It's it's raining in Calgary too, which we appreciate at this time, and it avoids it avoids all the forest fires down That's the road. Fair point. We just talk about the weather now on the show. Sorry, go. <laughs> <laughs> the How's the weather doing? Your weather. Um, yeah, I finally saw that uh, Billy Crystal bit that you were talking about, Alana, last week. Yeah. Um, and uh, okay, I don't know. Do you speak Yiddish? I understand a lot of Yiddish. I can probably like you know okay. speak, I speak a handful of enough phrases. I uh, enough that I, when I went to see Chalm in Yiddish, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm sure I yes, I want to hear about. I that. did not hear. I did not need all of the super titles. I needed some of them, but um, I followed, and so uh, yeah, I can see where people thought it might be funny, and I can see where people thought it wasn't so funny. I don't know. Uh, I I was trying to follow up on some of this backlash, and there were people that were like. You know, I, I there's a some a friend of mine that I know uh, on Facebook, and he was taught he was really like not into this thing at all, and he was talking about how, uh, uh, you know, he says I'm always annoyed when somebody, especially somebody not Jewish, tells me that Yiddish is inherently funny, thinking that they are honoring me and my heritage, when they in fact they are trivializing and not objectifying Jewish. it, a version of Orientalism. Meaning somebody who's not Jewish and goes and says, oh Yiddish, oh, I love Yiddish, it's such a funny language, right? Yeah, but he is Jewish. No, yeah, yeah, but he started with that, and then he went and said, he goes, look, this is a guy who doesn't actually speak Yiddish, Billy Crystal. He's not coming from Yiddish culture. He's coming from Jewish culture. And he's like, you know, right. it's, he don't think, he, I don't think it's incorrect to say that plenty of Jewish folks do this too, especially ones who grew up around Yiddish, but for whom it is the language of the other, right? Billy Crystal himself has pulled this kind of shtick before, and I never found it funny, right? And by way of comparison, if we heard someone doing this to the Chinese language or Korean or Arabic or many other languages not part of the tree that brings us to English, we wouldn't be wrong to call them bigots. Right. So he's basically saying that this is like the equivalent of somebody doing two minutes of scat in like fake Chinese or fake Arabic and thinking that it's funny. Ooh, he, he wants to cancel Billy Crystal. No, I don't think he wants to cancel. He just said it was unfunny. I feel like that brings us back to our conversation about like, what are the lines with comedy and Jewish humor? Like, are we allowed to poke fun at things? But I guess in this context, like, you know, it's a room full of people of all different backgrounds, but... I don't know. I don't speak Yiddish, so I was completely unaware that it could be offensive to some Yiddish. It wasn't speakers. real Yiddish, I think, and that's where he was going there. David, what do you think? It, it was it was like mishkabibble Yiddish. I, I think I think as you were describing what was going on in that article, Avi, I was doing a bit of an eye roll because I was like, I think we got some more important issues that we need to talk about, and if we're complaining about Billy Crystal's Billy Crystal's you know quote unquote faux Yiddish. Uh, I, I think we 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 can move on from this discussion because look, 
I think Yiddish is a lovely, enjoyable, humorous language, right? So much of our culture, whether we know uh, language, whether we know it on a lot or not, it, it brings us a lot of joy. And I think if we're going to, I think this person who wrote the article had a lot of time on their hands to condemn and criticize Crystal's uh, Bissell de Yiddish. Yeah, it was an article. It was a Facebook post, to be fair. It's not like this is... Uh... So then even less value for me. <laughs> fair enough. Um, okay, I, I think that he wasn't critiquing it. He was just sort of saying, like, this is unfunny. So moving on, we got some listener responses from last week's episode uh, about kosher. We had Richard Rapkin on, if you guys don't remember last week. He was the he's the managing director of the COR. And we uh, asked him some nice pointed questions about kosher and the world of kosher um, and where things are going uh, in that direction. And uh, so we had, for example, Isabel Danino, who is a, a friend of mine, and she's a veterinarian, regular listener. She wrote in to say that they we were right not to trust the Canadian government government regarding the treatment of cattle. Uh, Bonnie Lesh wrote in uh, to first let us know that she enjoyed when we put Richard Rapkin on the spot. She would have loved to see an even stronger push about why, about why keeping Shabbat, for example, is a more important criteria than sex abuser when it comes to maintaining their standards of practice. Um, but the real purpose of this note is directed to Alana, she says. Surprised to hear you could not find kosher in Vancouver. My brother, Epi Rappaport, has operated a kosher butcher slash prepared food slash deli establishment for 30 years. It's called Omnitsky Kosher on Oak Street. And so next time you were in Vancouver, check him out. I have been to Omnitsky's. It was just really far from where I lived. My main point wasn't that it's impossible to find it. It's just really inconvenient when you live on the other side of the city. Fair enough. Um, and finally, we um, sort of related to kosher, uh, but we got this letter um, that says, my partner Philip and I are classical musicians from San Francisco and we're traveling to Montreal next week. We enjoyed listening to your Bonjour High podcast in advance of our trip. So thank you for listening from San Francisco. And we thought we'd reach out to try to connect. Also, suggestions for the best Jewish food in Montreal, in addition to cultural sites, would be much appreciated. Many thanks and all our best from San Francisco. Melinda Martinez Becker. So, you know, this got me thinking that we here at Bonjour Chai uh, are perfectly poised to help not only her, but all other people visiting Canada this summer or other times and wanting to experience what Jewish life is like. So we're going to start today with Montreal, uh, which is a city we are all familiar with and we all have roots in. We're going to offer our recommendations for how best to experience Jewish Montreal. Um, but we also want you, dear listeners, to weigh in, not just for Montreal, but wherever you're from in Canada. Let's try and compile the great Canadian Jewish travel list, right? We'll tackle future cities in coming weeks. Uh, let's feature your highlights then. But for now, what's on your Jewish Montreal experience list? Okay. Well, first of all, as someone who's a huge fan of the plateau, and I have roots there, my great-grandparents um, lived in that area. Uh, my grandparents grew up in that area. And um, on uh, Rue Saint-Laurent, St. Lawrence Boulevard, they've actually put up these different posters on the street. And some of them are on um, stores that have been shut down. Some of it are just on the buildings where it says like, what Montreal used to look like back in the, back in the day. Um, and it shows factories that were Jewish-owned and businesses. And I think that, to me, is such an amazing way to experience like the, the roots of Jewish Montreal. You can also walk by all the famous delis on your way up that aren't kosher for those who keep kosher, but still very culturally Jewish, like Schwartz's, um, the main, um, and then you make your way up to the plateau and you can see all the, the remnants of these old buildings. Uh, one of the, my favorite little secret spots is on uh, Collège Français. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look up on top of the building and there's actually Hebrew letters because it used to be a, 
well-known synagogue. So I know that uh, the Jewish Museum of Montreal, which is uh, now moving, I believe, but they offer a tour of the area. But you can also find great resources, like walking tour resources online, if you want to just do it for free yourself. Absolutely. Um, David, what do you guys have? What do you have? I love that too. And I was going to mention the Montreal Jewish Museum. I actually took a tour of theirs a few years ago. I didn't know they were moving. So we need to find out where they're heading to. But there were so many spots, like you got the bag synagogue just around the corner. Which is the old oldest. You got ju- the oldest what? Living synagogue. It's the original congregation. Yeah. So Alana mentioned that the Collège Française, you know, it used to be a Jewish synagogue. But also when you get out of um, Metro Laurier, there's another apartment building. There's um, an ice cream store right at the bottom. But if you look above, there are Stars of David above. And I think that used to be a synagogue as well. And it's 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 beautiful to walk around in the plateau in Mile End and rediscover all these things. You got a lot of foods like Chesky's Bakery. Chesky's. Um, is that on Bernard? Cheskis Bakery, which is just on, I think, Bernard Street mm-hmm. as well. So there's a lot of things to discover that, like, just walking around in the plateau, the Mile End, there are a lot of Jewish roots. Walensky's, you know, a lot of these places where Irving Layton and Mordechai Richler used to hang out. I even used to love going to Grumpy's, which is not technically a Jewish spot, but that's where Mordechai Richler would spend all the times bemoaning the state of Montreal and Quebecois society. I, I, I gotta say, if you, if you, it's not a Jewish bar, but if you were to name a Jewish bar something, it would be called Grumpy's. <laughs> that's where I used to hang out when I went to Concordia. You call it Fetchies. Yeah. Let's also not forget the bagels. We're skipping a very important piece. You have to stop by the bagels and decide if you're Team St. Theater, Team Fairmount. If you're in the Mile End, you definitely have to stop by there. Mm-hmm. Have it fresh from the oven. So, I mean, look, I uh, there's, there's so much of this. And I grew up like my, my, my dad is a uh, retired reference librarian uh, of Jewish Montreal. He used to offer walking tours. He would uh, we were the unwilling victims of many of his walking tours. Just Sunday afternoons, we'd he'd make us like drive around and he would tell us about this shoal and that shoal. And when you're nine, you, you don't really care. Um, but I, I learned so much of this by osmosis um, and they're all wonderful. And I really do believe that you sh- if you care about these things, take a tour um, and there are many different tours that the Jewish Montreal, the Museum of Jewish Montreal offers, even this summer, even though they haven't yet moved and their new building. And there's a great article about it um, in the CJ on this uh, recently uh, about their new space. And it is on Saint Laurent further up the street, uh, closer to Fairmount. Um, so that's going to be uh, great to check out when they open up. Um, but a lot of that often feels very much like it's the past, um, right, that we're looking at older pieces of Montreal. And I as a tourist, and I'm not a big tourist, and maybe we can talk about that for a bit, like how do you guys do your tourism when you go to other cities? I, I, I just don't go anywhere. I'm a bit of a misanthrope, and I stay in my city, and I do my thing. Um, I, I really prefer to like uh, to see the lived experience, like what people are living like as Jews in Montreal now. I'm not going to tell people to go to the Cavendish Mall because that is extremely boring, even though that is what um, Jewish Montreal sort of feels like these days. Um But I think that, for example, saying uh, to visit these sites um, is really walking around a neighborhood, which is very much lived Jewish Montreal right now. Um, The Mile End and the Plateau is a place where a lot of Jews live, both Hasidim and non-Hasidic people. Um, There is the Mile End Chavura, and there's a lot of Jews that live there, and there's a lot, a lot of Hasidim. And seeing how these Hasidim interact with the Quebecois neighbors and being around on Park and Bernard and saint Vieter and seeing the the life of these two people, to me, that is really much more Jewish Montreal. Um, And it's just as much going to Cheskis, and seeing the Jews and the non-Jews mingle there. Um, if you have a chance, go to Mahadran on a Thursday night. Um, you see how Jews eat. 
right? Um, the, the lived experience of Jews eating um, Ashkenazi food, very Ashkenazi food. Uh, you get your deli roll, you get your yapchik, right? Yapchik is like this sort of kugel, but with meat in it, like a potato kugel, but with like chunks of like flanken in it. It's sort of like a pressed together, like a cholenterine, I guess you could say. None of that sounds appealing at all, Avi. Oh my God, yapchik. I'm going to give you a piece of yapchik someday. And you that sounds like you're going to slap me across the face. <laughs> The funniest thing about Mahadran is that they don't they don't price anything. So every time that I go in there, I'm like, how much is this? They're like, I don't know. And then they have to go to the cash, figure out the calculation. Yeah. <laughs> so but Thursday nights at Mahadran, it's like a huge buffet of all the like Shabbos takeout food. And people are just sitting there and eating as if it was like, uh, I don't know, like a buffet at a wedding or something. Mm. Like a, it, It's a fun. It's really seeing how people eat as opposed to seeing how people ate. Right. I, I've never eaten at either of these places, but I would venture to say based on the experience that I see of friends of mine who don't eat kosher, that you probably have a better lived experience of kosher or of Jewish Montreal um, by going to the Snowden Deli than by going to Schwartz's. Because 90 plus percent of the people that are at Schwartz's are not Jewish. They're tourists. They're there right. um, to experience Schwartz's once and wait in line and do their thing. Whereas you go to the Snowden Deli and I'm not going to pass judgment on the smoked meat at Snowden Deli. I, I, I've never eaten there. I don't know what's going on there. But I think that the seeing how Jews eat now at a real deli feels a lot more Montreal than going to see the, uh, you know, Schwartz's, which I'm told is also an experience that you should do. But I, I'm really much more focused on those types of experiences. I, I love the idea of the Backstreet Shul. Um, but I would say go visit it on a Shabbat morning when you can actually see this really eclectic mix of Jews, right? Hasidim that don't quite fit in the Hasidic community and hipsters that still have a traditional streak to them and random Jews that just want to get together on a Shabbat morning and visit this really old synagogue, which is the continue, oldest continuous running synagogue in the same building because they're older congregations, um, but they've moved locations. Um, and as a, as a matter of fact, if you go to the um, Backstreet Show, you visit a, f- a piece of the past Shar Shemayim because they have the pews and the ark from the previous Shar Shemayim when they were making their move. They sold their ark to um, the Backstreet Show, and you get to see a piece of history like that. So I think that seeing how Jews are living now um, is is really interesting to to go and check out. Um, so so th- that's my more uh, recommendations for like that. What, what do you guys think along those lines? Alana, should people visit Dollard? <laughs> No. Sure. Walk, walk around Hampstead, Cote St. Luke, head out to the West Island where a lot of the Jews now live. I, Avi, I, I echo your, your sentiments. I love your idea of sort of saying rather than having the nostalgia of living in the past constantly, which is great. I love history. I love the history of the Jews. It's also important to recognize where are we today and where are we going in the future. And I think we should have a call out to our audience, to our to our listening audience. Let us know what your experiences are of the living experience of Montreal Jews today. You know, let us know. Email email your thoughts. As well as your favorite pieces of the past, right? Your secret, you know, pieces of the Jewish Montreal of the past. You know what? Let us know. Join the Slack or, you know, at the same time, even review us on Apple Podcasts to let us know your thoughts. And and we want to hear from you, really, about where to go across this beautiful country. For sure. So, So we want to hear about Montreal. We want to hear about your spots Elsewhere, Ottawa, Halifax. What's Jewish Halifax like if you're a tourist and you want to go see what's going on there? Tell us about Vancouver, uh, not just uh, Omnitsky's, right? But we, we will shout them out. But we will we'll explore some of these other cities in future weeks. But we want to hear from you guys. Uh, maybe we can compile it together into a Google Doc, right? The great Canadian travel list, a Canadian Jewish travel list. Uh, I don't know. Might be something that the Frozen Chosen can offer to the world at large as our, our form of like tzedakah to, to everybody. Your tourists come to our 
our great country, come check it out. Um, uh, email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Bonjour at the cjn.ca. Tell us what you care about um, in your town that is Jewish and that we should come check out. So just as a last quick wrap up of Montreal, what is the one food uh, that you have to eat in Montreal um, that gives you that experience? Alana. What I would say is you have to check out the cheese bagel, which is not a bagel with cheese on it. I can't really explain it to you because I've tried to explain it to people who don't live in Montreal and they just don't get it. Um, so I think you just need to go down to Montreal Kosher and get a fresh cheese bagel, either with sugar or without, fresh out of the oven. Um, it is our hidden secret. Even non-Jews in Montreal don't seem to know that it exists. So to me, this is the most Montreal Jewish staple food that you can get that hasn't bleeded out into, you know, the, the mainstream food culture of the city. So uh, I, I would say it like this. It's a horseshoe-shaped bagel-like looking object that has sugar on the top and is filled with a sweet cheese filling. Is it actual cheese? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. It's very dairy. Take a lactate if you can't eat dairy. Yes. Uh, David, what's your Jewish food to hit in Montreal? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I could have said I want poutine, you know, bacon drizzled all over, but I'll avoid that for this episode as opposed to last time. So I think... Check out a kosher poutine. Many places will offer you a kosher poutine. Absolutely. Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure that that exists. I can give some suggestions. Go for it. At Deli 365 in the Mile End, you can get a smoked meat poutine, which is cheeseless, but very good. Um, or pizza pita, which is the poutine that I grew up on, which uh, to this day, I still order mozzarella mm -hmm. cheese on poutine when I go to La Banquise and get their, because they have a vegetarian sauce, uh -huh. because I grew up on kosher poutine and that's the way that I like it. The cheese curds just don't do it for me. <laughs> oh, you're hurting my soul, Alana, but I will accept that. Uh, your recommendation will become my recommendation then right now. So. All right. So for a while, by the way, you could get um, kosher cheese curds that they were selling at like the kosher grocery stores. I remember that. Um, and I'd be started, I'd be making my own poutine with like a par of gravy and, uh, and, and, and kosher cheese curds. So, uh, so that is uh, something to check out. But yeah, uh, David, what were you going to say if you weren't going to say uh, the, the trafe poutine? From I, I was going to go with an old classic Montreal kosher, a good challah warmed up in the oven, taken out for Shabbat Ooh. dinner is my good, is my go-to. It makes me happy. Egg challah or water challah? What's water challah? It's challah without the eggs. My kids have become obsessed with it. I've never had that before. Um, yeah, if they all make it now. A lot of places, they've always made it. Um, you can go to Chesky's, you can go to oh. Montreal kosher. They all make water challah. You can ask for one. It's a very different thing. I might, ha I might have to try that next time I'm in Montreal. It's very bready. It's crusty. What about you, Evan? Um, I am going to say uh, get a shishtauk from Benny, from uh, Benny Afis, which used to be Shea Benny, which was, you know, Benny. Benny's moved over for like the past 25, 30 years, all in one block radius. They've moved locations. And they are now with this nice, big, bright, airy place, which is different from the tiny little hole in the wall that you really felt like you were in Israel. Um, but you can get a shishtauk and a lafa that is like so overstuffed, unless you get it from Uber Eats, when which they take 30% off of the sandwich in order to offset the cost of Uber Eats, and you get a tiny little lafa. Um, but um, get a lafa from uh, Benny & Co., uh, Benny Afis, sorry, Benny and Co's Trafe. Um, and uh, get a shishtauk if you can, which is a very Montreal-y sort of thing. It's more, everybody else will call it pargiot. Um, but that is my, my go-to recommendation for like a great kosher uh, dish that is very Montreal. That's it. Eat. Enjoy. Come to Montreal.
Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Very soon after we released last week's episode, I became aware of a pamphlet and website that began to circulate around the Montreal Jewish community. The site was priceofkoshermeatmtl.com. And if you haven't seen it yet, I suggest you take a pause right now and go check it out. It's a short video and a four-page flyer that was put out by the Montreal Vada'ir, the organization that is also in charge of the MK, Montreal's largest kosher supervising agency. So I'm reading this propaganda, and I'm finding glaring omissions and all sorts of logical errors. Right, Just to give one example, they did an informal survey of kosher meat prices to try and point out that the cost of meat was about the same in Montreal as it is in Toronto and New York. But what they fail to take into account is cost of living, right? So there are many cost of living calculators online. Looking at a fairly large crowdsourced site I just went to, livingcost.org, one can see that it is 54% less expensive to live in Montreal than in New York and 28% less expensive than living in Toronto. So, you know, I'm not an economist or anything, but it's pretty obvious to me that to say the ground beef was comparable in price to other cities is then equivalent to saying that the cost of ground beef is 28 and 54% more expensive in Montreal than anywhere else or than in Toronto, New York, whatever else you're going to say. Right. But the argument that struck me the most was this discussion they brought up on shritas chutz, or external slaughter. See, right, the Montreal VAD has upheld a ban on any meat that is not slaughtered locally. And they argue that this is actually good for the consumer and they have no control over this ban. They're just following halacha, they're following Jewish law. Luckily, I happen to know someone who has real expertise on the matter, Dr. Stephen Lapidus. Stephen is an old friend, a colleague, and a faculty member at Concordia University. And as it happens, he actually has researched the Montreal Vad for his dissertation. I got on Zoom to ask him about Shrita Schutz, the MK, and what to make of their defense of the price of kosher meat. Dr. Stephen, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So can you give us just a brief background on this term and this idea of shritas chutz, what it means and where it came from, in the, especially with regards to the city of Montreal? Okay, so shritas chutz, or basur chutz, outside meat, uh, was an old medieval standard um, that existed for a variety of reasons. Um, essentially, it was to control two particular aspects of the slaughtering process. So one, to ensure that the shochet is qualified, and therefore it has to be a shochet from the local community whose qualifications can be ratified by the local rabbinate. And two, the other issue of prohibiting uh, outside meat was to ensure that the meat was in fact soaked within 22, 72 hours of slaughter. Sometimes the meat would be sent out and expected to be koshered in the in the delivery location, and that would take more than 72 hours. People wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. So to avoid those two primary reasons, uh, Basuchutz became standard in medieval European communities. Um, it also was established in order to uh, uh, affirm, or assure rather, the um, income for the local uh, Vad, the local Kahal, and for the local Shocht. Right, so there was uh, in there was involved sometimes the question of hasagas gvul of the idea that a butcher from another town could be causing financial competition to a butcher in this town or a shochet in this town, and therefore we don't want shochetim from other towns to come in because we don't have a large enough market market to accept meat from two places or three or four, whatever it is. So there are a variety of halachic reasons for that. Uh, in Montreal, 
there was never a clear sense of uh, none of the Vod's initial papers or letters patent or anything talk about the prohibition on Basar Chutz. Basar Chutz became a practical problem in the 1950s and particularly in the 1960s. Initially in the early, in, in the mid 1950s, Basar Chutz seemed to be accepted as a ban in Montreal. It was there was never a proclamation that said, from now on, we are doing Basar Chutz. It sort of evolved into this natural thing that sort of happened. Yes, it seems that the Vad seemed to understand that Basar Chutz was a standard prohibition that had long been in place, but there is no official formal record of it until the 1950s and 60s. So in 50, in the mid-50s already, there's a question of, of bringing in frozen kosher meat. The Vag prohibits it based on the idea of Basar Chutz. Um, but they also mention in, in um, their minutes that the threat of in, installing a firm uh, prohibition on Basar Chutz is also um, uh, used as a measure to keep the butchers from importing meat. In other words, the idea that the, it wasn't quite confirmed at that time. In 1960, the Montreal Kosher Retail's Butchers Guild is threatening to bring in imported kosher meat from outside. Rabbis Hirschsprung, Nizhnik, and Svi Cohen, the chief rabbi at the time, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not Rabbi Svi Cohen, it's another Rabbi Cohen, um, discussed the issue they go to New York for, uh, to discuss it in front of other rabbis, and it is agreed that because we cannot control shechita that takes place outside of the city, it's agreed by Rabbi Aaron Kotler of Yosef uh, Henken and Rabbi Nissen Tulushkin to formally accept a ban on Basar Chutz in Montreal. That same year, Levitz begins to import meat from Rabbi Tights in New Jersey under Rabbi Tights' Ashgacha, the Vod, of course, uh, threatens to take away their, their supervision because they're importing meat from outside, even though, of course, nobody would doubt the kashras of Rabbi Taitz's meat. Um, other butchers join uh, Levitz in their complaint. Um, Levitz will call the Vod, calls the Vod to two bate din, cancels both of them before they're held, goes to civil court to, to assume... Um, on the issue of antitrust, um, you know, of monopoly mm -hmm. law, right? And really, I think this is the VOD's weakest point. If, if it ever really were taken to civil court, you can't have a monopoly on the importation of a particular food item, right? I mean, that's simply mm -hmm. not legal. So it never made it to court. Uh, Levitz decided in the end, they withdrew their civil case, agreed to a based in, and the Beisden was heard in New York by Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, Eliezer Silver, Norman Telushkin, and they supported Basar Chutz. Finally, the next year, Drachs makes the same attempt uh, to import meat and even to export meat from Montreal to other cities. Um, the Vad prohibits it. Um, and there is, again, a Beisden that makes the conclusion I don't know who sat on the basin, but it was um, presided by Rabbi Soloveitchik, who agrees uh, that Montreal absolutely has the right to not permit uh, any meat that is shechted by shochtim from uh, outside the employ of the Vada'ir into Montreal. Was there ever a time then, between then and now, when the ban was suspended, when people were actually bringing in meat? Uh, what's, this, what's the situation been with this um, halachic 
situation in place on Shechita's Chutz. Um, where are we? Where do we stand now? Whether the ban was ever officially um, lifted, I don't really know. Whether the ban has been violated, obviously and and, and egregiously. So we what, know what are some is, cases of that? Well, for example, back in I think the '90s, I forget his name. There was a rabbi who originally was from Switzerland. He was at a shul in a Sephardic rabbi in Kotzin uh, Luke, who was shechting his own lamb. Uh, you know, one of the issues the Vada's always faced is that it doesn't represent the Sephardi Mizrahi community sufficiently. So there's often a lack of certain cuts, such as lamb, which is you know a popular Pesach time. Uh, it's, typically not eaten by Ashkenazim, and Sephardim and Mizrahim do. Um, other issues, of course, is that, you know, many Sephardim have issue have, you know, concerns about the kind of shechita. They want Bess Yosef shechita, which is not necessarily available in Montreal. So the Vada is a history of not necessarily... So you have, you have, we have cases where the Sephardim have violated this ban. Were there cases yeah. when the... Um, also cases where... Where the MK himself, where the, uh, where the, the Vada year of so Montreal is itself so, gone? The MK itself has only uh, officially or unofficially permitted the entry of uh, poultry from out of town during a lengthy Marvitz strike a few years ago, but the poultry had to be repackaged into Marvitz packages. Um, so wait, hold on a second. If if the whole point of Shrita's Putz is to prevent outside, you know, if we really worried about the kosherness and of the 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 work and the slaughter, then wouldn't, if a strike is happening, neither of those really should be vi- like viable, right? You shouldn't be able to say, well, there's a strike. So I guess we're going to start bringing in outside meat. If you say there's a strike, then there's no meat available. I'm not a halachic expert, so I, I can't really, yeah. you know, it's an interesting question that I can't answer. The VAD did permit the, it was high poultry, it's poultry with a well-known heksher, um, but, you know, as you say, you know, you have a value. I'm just speculating. I'm not an expert either, but it sounds sure. like to me that when it's convenient to them, they were willing to violate the ban. Sure, you can make that mm-hmm. argument. And of course, it was violated privately by all kinds of people who, uh, you know, would bring in meat to sell, you know, within their own stores um, and things like that. It was also violated at a time when Mahadrans, for a short period of time, about eight or nine months, lost the MK. Um, I don't think there was a moment that Mahadran's meat was not available in every single kosher butcher and butcher outlet in the city, even though it wasn't under the MK for a period of several months, it was still sold at, at kosher or, quality in other places. Or that it wasn't so, even kosher, right? Nobody's doubting that even though it came from out of town, that no, it's not kosher. It, it wasn't even, no, it wasn't an issue of out of town meat. And, and just it like was their own local meat that wasn't. Lost their heksher for six or eight months yeah. for other reasons. Um, and nevertheless, you could still find that meat in the stores. You know, you, it's hard. You can't tell people, Mah- you know, Mahadran's isn't kosher just because the Vod said, you know, that they, they you know, they violated mm-hmm. some uh, bylaw. Um, so, so that's um, that's sort of the major issue with the, with um, with the violation of Basarchut. So the Vod has never officially permitted it. On one occasion, at least, the Vod was aware and allowed it to, uh, you know, in the case of a strike, did allow me to be imported, but in every other situation has consistently resisted. 
the importation now, of any meat frozen, pre-prepared or otherwise. This will lead me to my next um, question, which is just questioning the, the, the role and the validity of such a ban in 2022, right? If they really believe that this is what it is and, and they, the, this whole pamphlet that they brought out had this as, a, as a, one of the significant parts of their argument was that Shrita Schutz is an important you know, thing to preserve within Montreal. So first of all, how many other cities in the world still have this ban of Shrita Schutz, which is a medieval thing that exists? Uh, as far as I know, I think Strasbourg is the only other city that has uh, such a law. Okay, so we're really like at the tail end of a ban which nobody else really goes and applies anymore. And if we're looking at it as we're not sure about the kosherness, right, one would assume that with the internet and with their acceptance of many, many other hashkachas for a wide variety of other products, right, they they don't go and ask Kali OU and say, hey, is this product kosher? They assume that any product with an OU is able to be sold or served at an MK establishment, right? And I know that meat is more complicated, but I can't imagine that we're at the point where we can't establish uh, strict standards that come across everything. So we, to be worried that this is going to be kosher or not kosher doesn't seem like a concern anymore. So on that level, Shkita doesn't seem relevant anymore. And on the cost idea, right, it just sounds like they're protecting themselves and not necessarily the consumer. On your first point, one does have to recognize that Montreal has not really had a major kosher scandal, which has happened in other places. Um, mm, fair enough. One can argue the validity, the, the, the anachronism of such a, a situation, but the MK... Uh, at least for a very long time, I don't know exactly what the status is today, I had a very strong um, impression internationally. It was very well accepted. And it's generally been agreed upon by a lot of people and a lot of members of the MK itself, you know, uh, perhaps more so than others, that the Shrit has kept a strong control of, of kashras of meat in the city. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, you know, open cities, New York, Israel, you know, not a city, but, you know, everything in Israel is, is optional, you know, leads to a lot of difficulties. And, it, you know, in some cases, you could even argue that it leads to more corruption. In Montreal, you're eating meat that's shechted by, you know, one of 12, 24 men that are very carefully regulated by the Vad. You know, I, there is something to be said for the standard that, that Shrita Chutz does establish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, does it establish, you know, what does it do in terms of finance? Yes. I, I was going to say, I have a, I had a rabbi who always used to point out that there's no such thing as a stringency because every stringency means that you're being lax in something else, right? That there's always a cause and effect when you're being stringent about something, right? Every chumrah has a kula attached to it, right? To, to use the technical term. And in this case, what I'm seeing is like, let's be really stringent on meat, but at the end result of it costing us so much more as a, you know, because... I'm like, from what I understand, there's no slaughtering that's happening in Montreal. So all of these shochtim, these slaughterers, have to be flown places to be able to slaughter the meat. All of the meat has to be transported back and forth, right? Or, or it has to be transported from elsewhere. And because only 12 people are slaughtering, the I, I imagine, and I'm not a big economist, but the basic rules of economics seems to imply that that means that those 12 or 24 or 30 shoktim can charge a, a much higher premium as a result of, and, and then that cost is 
ultimately going to get passed on to the consumer. And if you have a tight control on where the meat is coming from, that in and of itself, right, by not having opening it up to competition is also allowing, right, prices to artificially rise. And I'm not talking about comparing it to Toronto, comparing it to uh, to whatever, because the cost of living in Montreal versus Toronto versus New York are, is very, very different. Um, but in and of itself, Montreal seems to me that the, the, the issue is not comparing it to other cities, but comparing it to itself and saying that if we had more competition, the prices would go would, would drop significantly. And Shrita Schutz is one of those things that actually, as you pointed out, prevents competition, enforces a monopoly, and means that people can charge whatever they want. Absolutely. There, there, there is no competition in, in Kashros in Montreal in terms of meat. In fact, um, most of the kosher beef manufacturers are all owned by the same company. So Mahadran and Continental and other brands are basically owned by one company and it's just repackaged uh, marketing and uh, branding. Right. Uh, yeah, separate sites and things so like, like yeah. that. But one one common owner. Um, I think it's just Mahadran and, and Continental today. Glotz is gone. Okay. Except Glotz, there might be a, a, a wholesale Glotz that yeah. we don't that you know doesn't come to the customer but is mm-hmm. doing no you know that 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 certainly is an issue that that it, you know competition within the market is is eliminated right. when you Right. You know, I, I, are hired when, by the same organization. When I was looking at the the price thing that they had put out to show that you know the price of meat is is not that different, I'm seeing the price of ground beef in Montreal versus Toronto versus New York, New Jersey, um, and they're not actually pointing out the price of non-kosher equivalent meats in the various cities and what the price differential is. Right, and that to me is a more accurate goal. And I would imagine that if one does the research, that we would find a much bigger discrepancy in price between non-kosher meat and kosher meat in Montreal versus Toronto and/or New York, New Jersey, because uh, there's competition. I'm, or maybe you're not. You you have done the research, so maybe help me yeah, out. There. I'm still not sure of that. I think you have uh, you have a better point in in the issue of cost of living. You know that you know the cost of living in Montreal in general is that much cheaper than New York, so therefore kosher meat should be that much cheaper. The yeah, idea that my, kosher yeah. meat costs the same as it does in New York as a much higher cost of living can imply inflation. Um, Artificially inflated prices in Montreal right. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Right. Excellent. What would, just to, to wrap things up, right? Uh, what would you think a robust and healthy um, kosher meat market, right? Econo- financial market, economic market would look like in, in, in a city um, as opposed to what we have in Montreal, where it's all being regulated by one, you know, one kosher agency with a very small number of shochtim and slaughterers and a very small number of meat producers. Again, you're not an economist, but you have done a lot, a lot of this research. And I imagine a hundred years ago, the, the scene in Montreal was very different. And uh... I'd rather, I'd rather answer the, I'd rather answer my own question. That's Please. kind of like yours. <laughs> and that is, what what is problematic about the vad? Um, I, I think what's problematic about the situation is. Yeah, I have no just, problem saying that, but I was trying to be nice. And if you're going to ask what's problematic, you want to answer well, that, please. It, it's not what's problematic about the idea of shchita so The problem the problem with the idea of shchita is that it it comes under, as you've been implying, this presumption of unity in the community, and Jewish communities are not united in that way anymore. Um, you know, much of the Hasidic community does not rely on the MK. And if the Shochet were not a Belzer, they would not eat this meat. And, you know, we know that many are people they bringing in meat? the community are outside of, 
from New York? Yes, of course. And why does the MK say anything about that? Probably because at the same time, the Hasidic community, when they do engage with the MK, is among the biggest supporters, biggest okay. consumers. But there exist in Montreal, SK, Satmar Kosher, Rav Lerner of Bells has his own ashgacha on certain things, and Tosh has their own ashgacha. So to me, the issue is, I don't know the answer of what would be a better you know, kashras uh, setup. What I see is a kashras setup that is not responding to the needs of the individuals. You know, other issues, for example, you know, the VAD uh, standards on, you know, checking fruits and vegetables for bugs are the exact same as the CRC, the Hisachtos from Williamsburg. That's not the standard. Yeah. Right. This is, you know, this is not, you know, uh, as we said, with every stringency comes a comes a leniency. And so you can be really stringent, but you're doing it on the backs of people who are way less able to pay for food and are being forced to to buy food that is being a, a much bigger percentage of which is going towards the, the certification and not towards the food itself. Right. And, you know, the other problem, of course, with, and this, you know, this is not the VAD necessarily, not the VAD uniquely, but one of the problems with contemporary kashras is it's very much tied to economic social mobility, right? It's a, mm-hmm. you know, buy the bodeck bug-free cabbage or, or broccoli for two or three times the price of, of a regular broccoli. That's not fair yeah. Yeah. or egalitarian for the whole community. Um, and that's, you know, where things are going in general. Don't eat broccoli or get the pre-checked one. So they're definitely, you know, in that sense, the VAD and, and you know, in general, you know, right-wing orthodoxy is not responding to the financial burdens. Of, of, the, of the, the larger population that may not be orthodox, but is buying kosher products or may not be right-wing right. orthodox. And, 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 not, that. and does not adhere to these standards, right? You know, the the fact that there's, you know, there's no non-glot meat produced in the world, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not glot, if the lung has a problem, they immediately sell the carcass to the non-kosher side. But there's a lot of people for whom glot meat, non-glot meat, but would be very kosher, meat, would be very fine. It would be half the price or two thirds the price, of course, these, you know. Um, so you have shkutechutz, along with, you know, a particular standard of kashras that does not necessarily, and then of course, as I mentioned earlier, you have many, many Orthodox Sephardi people complaining that they're not getting, um, you know, the kashras standards that they require, which are slightly different from the kashras standards of the Ashkenazi majority. Fascinating. Okay, well, I'm glad that we have clarified this for a lot of people in a more um, open-minded way or a more uh, both sides sort of way, looking at this idea of Shkita Sputz. I, I think it's fair to say that there are there are significant problems that come along with Shkita Sputz that the MK is not talking about. There are a lot of financial burdens that do come with Shkita Sputz. There's a lot of other issues. And for every le- stringency that we have, we are looking at leniencies um, and, and not being as nearly as careful about people's finances. Um, and this day and age, it, it really means a big deal. So if you're looking at where the price of kosher meat is, there is it actually has a lot to do with what Shrita Schutz is about um, and related to that. And hopefully, you know, we can move towards a more progressive and more open uh, marketplace here in Montreal. In defense of Shrita Schutz, I mentioned it before. As, for sure. In defense of Shrita Schutz, it was a policy substantiated by some of the most prominent and respected rabbis in North America. The how, and how many decades ago? Decades ago, absolutely. many decades but, ago, and to the, the point where from Rabbi Soloveitchik, Ravon Kotler, and Rav Moshe Feinstein. 
Sure, but it's oh. also something that most city, many cities had before. And by now, we're one right. of the last ones. All of ones them are dead for decades already. So, you know, you, your, your, yeah. point, your point is well taken. It, it, these are not contemporary peace scale law. I think if the, if the VAD really cared about the finances of people, they would be asking, would you be willing to have maybe two sets of things where we have a shritas, we have a, a certain really stringent brand, and then we have a non-glot or a glot brand that is a lot more basic. And, and even if that's not even opening it up to competition, and then opening it up to competition while still maintaining that MK will only use, you know, uh, slaughtering within Montreal or with, with Montreal Shokhtim following this shritas chutz ban would even further help um, the thing and, and let the consumer decide and say, right, we have kosher meat here, we have none. If you want to have the shtetas uh, uh, abiding meat, you can buy it from this butcher who's a, who's agreeing to it, but everybody else is free to go and buy everything else. But from what I understand, there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of tactics that have been used to people that have been trying to bring in even sealed packaged kosher meat with other hashgachas into Montreal. So, you know, there's, there's definitely room for improvement for where we're moving with that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lapidus. And uh, hopefully uh, we will, uh, if, we, if there's anything else that we can talk about kosher in Montreal, uh, we'd love to have you back on. Thank you very much. You can find a link to the MK site in the show notes, and you can email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca to let us know what you thought. So now for our uh, word of wisdom this week. Uh, this week is Parashat Shalach, right, um, which is, tells the story of the spies as they enter into uh, Israel. And this is the uh, moment when uh, they were supposed to go right into Israel, and they, the, the entire people of Israel get punished for the sin of the spies, and uh, they end up having to wander the desert for 40 years um, as their Penance, right? So I, I to to compare what the spies, what was happening with the spies. I had a, somebody on Twitter that pointed out. He goes, so imagine you go, you send spies to other sections of shul, and you find out that their kiddush is better than yours, right? That's what happened with the spies, right? And then you complain. You're like, of course, I want a better kiddush. They have smoked meat, and we have uh, saltine crackers, and that's it. So uh, what it got me thinking about in terms of the spies um, is that they were not able to appreciate uh, what they actually had. And and that's really one of the recurring themes of the Israelites in the desert is that they're always complaining. Um, and I really wanted to just take a moment and reflect on gratitude, right? And being grateful for what we actually have as opposed to what we wish we had or what was in the past or what we think could be better in the future, as opposed to enjoying and appreciating what we have and what is for now. Um, David, Alana, do you guys have any thoughts on gratitude? Like, wh wh where do you live your gratitude uh, moments and how do you uh, make sure that you guys are grounded in terms of gratitude? I've gone through periods where everything felt really overwhelming and I tried to do that thing where you think of three things that you're grateful for right before you go to bed. I found that for a short period of time of a few months I found that really helpful because sometimes you don't actually stop to think about what you have that you're taking for granted um, I mean these days for me I, I journal every single morning and that's a way to just kind of check in with myself and get everything out of my head onto the page and I think that keeps me very grounded how about you David a uh, great question I think when I'm I'm on social media a lot it's very easy to feel that your life is not where it should be um, everyone is succeeding and doing it better and quicker than you, right? Everyone is booking this amazing gig. They're, they're flying off to Europe right now. I'm stuck here. What is not going well, right? I think, I think it's very easy for me to get sort of sucked into this vortex at times. But what I do 
I work as a recreational therapy aid worker, right? I work with senior citizens a lot. And I think where I find my gratitude is being with them, sharing moments with them. And I think there's a, there's an element where some of these senior citizens don't have family ever come, right? They are alone. They don't have anyone showing up for them. And I think I look back to mine and I have a very supportive network here, a family of my partner's family. We're together a lot. We share a lot of time together, meals. And I think it's to recognize that that is what helps ground me is this, is this, um, this moment of being together and supporting each other. Uh, that's where I find it. You know, I, I think that what you guys are saying is really important and being able to stop and take a moment and being aware is at the essence and at the core of all that. Um, you know, when I started doing that, I started journaling in the mornings or at night. Um, and, and my wife has a, has a practice. She likes to talk about doing gratitude journaling specifically and doing, you know, 30 days in a row. And if you if you miss a day, you got to start all over again until you get to 30 days of being able to notice something that is grateful for you. Um, it's hard because I would say like today I'm grateful for and I kept saying the same stuff over and over again. Um, and what flipped the switch for me is realizing that um, sometimes in prayer, we often have these moments when we're asked to think about what we're grateful for, and it gives us that moment to reflect. And so I would find that every morning now when I daven, when I when I do my morning prayers, whether in services at synagogue or at home, um, I have this moment to stop and reflect and to ask myself, what am I being great, grateful for? So that when I write in my morning journal or my evening you know, prep for the next day and to say, today I am grateful for X, it was something different and something specific. And, and it really being able to open up your eyes as opposed to that hyper focus of like what's immediately in front of you looking at our peripheral vision right so for me that specifically was being able to use prayer and using those moments of mindfulness during tefillah during morning prayers um, to open up my field of vision to all the periphery and to where I'm not finding the things that I'm grateful for and I, I should be more grateful for so so 100% all of that stuff and I think that like I said this Parsha this week's Torah portion is very much uh, an exhortation for us to go and say uh, remember that don't look at what's better on the other kiddish, <laughs> right, or in the other country. Um, look at what you have and what's amazing for, for where All you are. All these great right. Enjoy your ideas. own saltines. Don't worry about the brisket at the other table. 100%. Now put that in a on a on a t-shirt and uh, you know, or in a journal front, you know. Live, laugh, love. Enjoy your saltines, not the other person's brisket. <laughs> um, absolutely. We're at the point in our show where we like to talk about our nachas of the week, that thing that made us feel good over the past week. David, what's your nachas? I'm going to give my nachas to Marnie Bondar and Dahlia Libin. Together, they organized a photography exhibition called Here to Tell, Faces of Holocaust Survivors. It's currently open at the Glenbow Museum. There's about 122 images of Holocaust survivors, 39 who are currently living, and they all have connections to the city of Calgary. And they did an article with Bondar, and I like what she says. So here's her quote. She says, there's been lots shared about the Holocaust, but not so much about their life after the Holocaust. We wanted to share stories about resistance, resilience, thriving after hope. That really is our legacy. Beautiful. Alana, what's your what's your nachas? Very different tone. Um, I wanted to shout out a funny tweet that came out uh, yesterday by Manashevitz that said, you asked, we listened. Oh my God. The R&D team oh hasn't slept yes. all week, and now the factory will be cranking <laughs> out these babies 24-6 just in time for July 4th, an American tradition your bubby will love. Hashtag gefilte dogs. Hashtag gefilte beef. And then there's a picture of gefilte dogs made with real gefilte fish, Bubby's recipe. Um, 
I don't think this is real, though people are reacting to it as if it is. Uh, do you know, and either of you? I have not heard anything about this. Yeah, so I heard about this. It it almost certainly feels not true. Although if they made it true, it would be absolutely awesome. What I have been loving is following all the responses on Twitter to this. Right? It's like because I think it started because like somebody was like, oh hot dogs, gefilte, right? It's basically yeah. the same thing, it's right? It's the fish. same thing. I saw that. I saw those memes. <laughs> so it's like, we're going to set the record straight here. Hot dogs are nothing like gefilte fish. Gefilte fish is made from the highest quality, freshest fish. Hot dogs, who knows? That's Manischewitz, right? And then like, you know, you have these people who are like, responding like who asked for this i want names right and manischewitz responds like hani shmuel ronnie talia tom mike shani harold sarah evelyn esti you want the rest of the list <laughs> uh, <laughs> right um right and then uh ain't gonna work on saturday it's shabbos kodesh right they shout out big gedalia goomber which is a like an uncle moishi thing which is oh really funny God. i love the like you know stadium size that they put out there somebody somebody responded uh, and then i love this right so unfortunately my matzah bun keeps breaking in half right to which then somebody else responds the trick is to dampen the matzah roll it around the dog and then fry it in a pan otherwise the matzah rolls right it's a ton of eggs plus matzah meal and they are surprisingly edible can't wait till next pesach right this is just like it's brilliant right and then somebody goes hot dogs <laughs> that's good right as a response <laughs> right dog is fish in hebrew uh, really really funny um oh my god just like go and check the the, the twitter responses for this because that to me is the most brilliant part of this so yes thank you alana greatest um nachas um of the, thank of you, the year thank so you. far maybe or, or something like that um yeah uh, my nachas, I, I have other nachas, um, but they they pale in comparison, and I would absolutely be remiss uh, if I didn't finally shout out one last time. Um, I finally got to see the the actual performance of my wife and my daughter um, in Chelm, right? The Sages of Chelm at the Siegel Center. It is still playing. If you haven't yet seen it um, and you hear this tonight, it is still playing tonight, Thursday night. It is playing Sunday for two performances. Um, go check it out. It is incredibly funny. It is, there is slapstick, there is pathos, there is a love story, there is singing. It is great. They did a great job updating it um, for the modern age um, with great bits. There's a, uh, they put in a gay character. They have a character with an iPad walking around now. It's, it just feels so um, modern and yet still very traditional. Traditional. Um, it's all in Yiddish. Um, there are super titles, which uh, help with the, you know, you can understand what's going on. But the physical comedy and the uh, the music is great. Um, the, the characters are great, of course. Um, Rachel's performance is unbelievable. Uh, my daughter's performance was great to see that, like, she has it in her, that she's a great actor. So uh, absolutely, Chelm is by far my big nachas of the week. Uh, and anything else pales in comparison. The Sages of Chelm at the Siegel Center. Chelm, Chelm, Chelm. Everything else pales except for gefilte dogs. <laughs> except for gefilte dogs. <laughs> Let's just put that out the there. The best thing you can possibly do this week is go see Chelm while eating a gefilte dog in a matzo bun. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of June 24th, Shabbat Parashat Shalach. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour and you can subscribe to the podcast and audio automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, do us a favor, really, and tell a friend about this podcast. Get them to subscribe as well. It helps us almost as much as leaving us a comment and a rating, which you should also do. And of course, as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. 
I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 